Hey, I'm Amory Robertson. I'm your host for Read Write Geek, a podcast for writers, readers, and makers of all kinds. Welcome aboard. Episode 10. Chapter 19. By the time we return to the pod, the rest of the team members have assembled, with the exception of Graham and Matcha, who are on the way. Fanny's in a much better mood than I've seen recently. The house arrest of Fallon March appears to have buoyed her spirits and improved her opinion of everything around her. Wenda gives me a knowing look and smiles her approval as Arden and I walk back into the common room hand in hand. We sit down beside her at the long table. That really needed to happen, she whispers to me, and I feel myself blush in response. Fanny, who's been watching with interest, catches my eye and winks at me across the room. But all this focus on me doesn't bother me for once, and I'm strangely content to have everyone around the table apparently know my business long before I was aware of it myself. A few moments later, Graham and Mata arrive. Arden barely lets Graham sit down before addressing him in front of the entire group. Faith told me about your very exciting afternoon, he says, looking at Graham steadily. I have some things I need to clear up with her, but that also means clearing up some things with you. Graham doesn't look surprised in the least, but instead simply says, I understand. I thought the appearance of those fears might bring this all out rather quickly. So you do know, Arden looks amused. Graham laughs. Of course, he responds. I do actually enjoy your company, though, for what that's worth. Now it's Arden's turn to laugh. That's the second best thing I've heard today. The two men pass knowing looks to each other, both smirking. What a stupid game, says Graham, and Arden nods his agreement. The rest of us look around the table in utter confusion. Were we going to be let in on this oh-so-amusing thing, or is this a special moment just for the two of you? Wenda asks pointedly. The two men look at each other again. You start, Graham says to Arden. I'll jump in when it's time. All right, if I can get everyone's agreement that this is for your ears only and doesn't leave this room, we'll have a little show and tell, says Arden. What do you say? Everyone looks confused, but we all nod affirmation. Excellent, says Arden. In that case, we can start here. He reaches into his jacket pocket and takes out two sets of credentials. This is me as most of you know me, he says, tossing his Iona resident credential onto the table. Arden Wilson, former space pilot, assigned to be Iona's warehousing leader. And that is me, truly. But this is also me. He tosses a second credential onto the table. This one isn't Iona's distinctive purple and white, but instead a bright green with black lettering and a splattering of golden stars across the top. I can see the company logo printed at the bottom. That's military, Mabry says, staring at him. That's from the company's tactical security division. Right. I'm a high-ranking officer in the company's tactical security division. I have been for many years. My specialty is espionage. Faith has already figured out that the company is continuing to pay me a salary and cover my expenses here on Iona. That's because I came to Iona at the behest of that division in order to keep an eye on him. Arden gestures toward Graham, who not only seems unconcerned, but even takes a small bow in response to all the gasps in the room. Doesn't that bother you? asks Fanny. Goodness, no. He's been surveilling me for years, Graham says casually. But I thought you two were friends, I say, looking from one to the other. Didn't you become friends out there in the black? We did. Uh, we got to know each other very well and spent a lot of time together because I was assigned to surveil him, Arden says. You see, Graham adds, but actually we hit it off, so that made the assignment easy. It did, Arden pipes up. Thank you. Most welcome. Stop it, I interrupt. Kill the comedy act, please. I want the actual history. 
Why is Graham under surveillance? Well, initially, it was because he had applied for an important and sensitive leadership position on Bardicell, high up in the company's structure, Arden explains. But he'd had a somewhat uh, colorful background filled with what I'll just call dramatic behavior. And his parents, although both from Homeworld and company employees at the time, had expressed some opinions about operations protocol that made the company wonder if he was, shall we say, right for the job. So I'm assuming he passed muster with you? I ask. Not at all, says Arden. I was 100% sure he'd be a pain in the ass and would do all the things they were afraid he'd do if we put him into that position on Bartizel. He's just not a company guy. So I recommended him. I'm confused, says Mabry, speaking for all of us. Oh, sorry, I got involved in the storytelling and forgot, Arden says. There's one more thing. He pulls from his jacket pocket a hola tablet and places it on the table. After a few quick commands, he holds his wrist over the device, which scans something embedded in his flesh. The holo finally projects a third credential into the air in front of us. This one is black with silver lettering and a unique logo made of interlocking circles. Mabry gasps. Holy crap, she says in a voice tinged with awe. You're part of Independence Force. What is the Independence Force? I ask. Mabry, the military history buff, answers before Arden can speak. They're legendary, she says enthusiastically. It's a group of people highly placed in the company who joined together to work against the company's unethical treatment of independent planets. It started when three planets in the Gordonian sector claimed homeworld status, and the company was ready to employ some insidious tactics against them, things that would have endangered the entire populations of those worlds. The independent force exposed the company's plans and convinced the leadership of those planets to work together to resist company absorption. And it worked. They won and became the first independent homeworld network. The IF is very mysterious. Their identities are all secret. It's incredible to think that I'm actually sitting across the table from a member of the independence force. Oh, it's even better than that, Arden says, arching an eyebrow and proffering a sly smile. I'm the founder. Mabry's mouth falls open. A ripple of startled sounds runs through the room. This time, even Graham looks surprised. You saved all those people, Mabry says. I'm honored to be in your presence. All those people saved themselves, Arden says, waving his hand. We just helped them prepare for what they had to do. We were hoping to do the same for Bartizel. He looks at Graham and a flash of sadness crosses his face. Sorry. I turn a critical eye on Graham. Are you part of the Independence Force too? I ask. I am not, he says, although I have a feeling I'm about to be recruited. Hold that thought, Arden says, pointing at him. Let's get back to the story of what happened on Bartizel. There was a pandemic scare, I said, remembering one of my first conversations with Graham. Blue was developed in order to help address that. Is that not true? The parallels between my own experience with a pandemic on a company planet are drawing themselves sharply in my mind as I speak. It's true in the sense that this is the narrative the company laid out, Arden confirms. In reality, there was never any worry about a pandemic on Bartizel. They wanted an excuse to expand the development of this stasis-inducing drug and to find ways to weaponize and test it. They chose Bartizel as their test laboratory. So the conspiracy theorists were right? Mabry says, her brows knitting together. I've grown so used to her being my pod sister that I forgot that she came to us in the Bartizel transfer. There were never any conspiracy theorists either, Arden says. They were, for the most part, people we sent to Bartizel to help with a possible move to become an independent home world, or supporters who were already there. Our IF personnel were outed by a mole on Bartizel and were marked for elimination by the company. The compound and ongoing separation from the rest of the population was a security measure, not just for our people, but for the planet at large. We knew what the company was up to and that those people were at risk, 
After I heard what the company had instructed Bardisell leadership to do, I knew Graham would try to rescue as many people as he could. He didn't know any of this. He just knew that there were people who were in danger because the company wanted them silenced and he wanted to get them to safety. And he almost did it. Graham rubs his face with his hands. We were so close, he says, his voice heavy with regret. Just a couple more days would have made a difference. But they all dose themselves with blue, I say. Why would they do that if they weren't the cultish group of conspiracy theorists everyone thought they were? Why would they voluntarily drink a... Ah, oh, oh, shit, no. Exactly, Arden says, nodding to me. They didn't dose themselves. That's the story the company put forward to cover its tracks. The people in that compound were exposed to a particularly virulent weaponized form of blue by a company operative, probably the same mole who outed the IF to begin with. We haven't been able to determine who the operative was. We do know that they faded into the background on Bardazel after the incident at the compound. Which means they came to Iona with the rest of the transferees, Wenda says, and I shiver involuntarily. Fanny lets out a loud whistle, and Graham looks grim. Carloa was found at the compound but not dosed. Doesn't that make her a prime suspect? I ask. Carloa's kind of the wrinkle in all this, Arden says. She's not IF, and she wasn't recruited on Bardazel. Do you think it's possible she's the mole, Graham? I don't think so, Graham says. She showed up on Bardazel as part of the company expansion team four years ago and was mostly non-political until just recently. I'm shocked. I could swear her stat chip said she was an untrained stock clerk. She'd have to have high-level operations experience to be part of an expansion team. Yes, and she was high-level operations when she arrived, but something happened. What do you mean? Well, initially she seemed competent and quiet. She kept to herself and didn't really interact with anyone or participate in any social activities, so okay, she's an introvert. But her behavior started to change as the conspiracy theory narrative seemed to gain steam. She went from quiet and focused on her work to talking to anyone who would stand still in front of her about some very bizarre things. It concerned her co-workers and the people who had to interact with her, so that's when she came to my attention. Did she have some kind of mental breakdown, I asked, remembering how Carloa confronted me on her first morning on Iona. I don't know what to call it. She was definitely rubbing people the wrong way, but she was still doing her job and the company didn't see it as an issue, Graham says. It's not illegal or costly for someone to be annoying, so they let it drop and told Bartisell leadership to do the same. And somehow she winds up at the compound just prior to the mass dosing but remains unaffected by it, Arden mutters. Interesting. She has to be involved in some way. Doesn't make sense otherwise. She witnessed everything that happened, so it's likely she at least knows who the operative is, Graham points out. She was incredibly traumatized by the time we got to her, and those effects never really faded. She was suffering from delusions and paranoia that we couldn't seem to break, and she seemed convinced that because we were all transferring to Iona, the people here were somehow implicated in what had happened on Bartizel. She was terrified all the transferees were going to be dosed and shipped off to nowhere, never to be seen again. In fact, she seemed to expect it. Winda winces. Oh, that explains the weird behavior in the conversations I ever heard that first day, she says. Why would she go through that and then dose herself anyway, Fanny asks. We aren't sure she did dose herself, Matcha interjects. We never found any containers of blue in her room or on her person. Hen and Holly found her after she had already collapsed, so we just assumed she disposed of the evidence after taking the dose. But that means she could have been dosed another way. At the time, we didn't even know that was a possibility. She'd have a target on her back if she could potentially identify the operative, I say. That person would have a lot to gain from having her silenced and perhaps frightening the rest of us in the process. There's another thing to consider, Arden adds. As you say, she was there but was unaffected. 
Think about what happened to us on Homeworld. It's possible that she might have some kind of natural immunity to the type of blue that was used. The company would not want to let that go unexplored for obvious reasons. She might have been dosed here on Iona to test a new version of blue. The room falls silent. We're all stunned by what we've learned tonight. I understand now the level of overwhelm that consumed both Arden and Graham at times, and I feel it myself keenly. So, there are 200 Independence Force personnel, your personnel, in stasis somewhere, I say, measuring my words. Arden looks down at the table for a moment, and I see the sadness and frustration etched on his face. I hope there are, he says. We know they were moved to a medical enviro shortly after the remaining population of Bartizel was transferred here. They were good people, and I should have been able to protect them. We should have been able to protect them, corrects Graham. If I had known what was at stake, I might have acted sooner. Arden shoots him a grateful look. You did what you could, he says. If you had known, you would have been a target yourself, and no one would have been saved. So there's an unknown traitor out there who is willing to dose 200 people with blue so the company could achieve its significantly less than above-board goals, and that person is on Iona. And potentially, thanks to Fallon March, they may have access to a substantial quantity of highly dangerous blue, as demonstrated by what is now in our storage, Warren, I say. Everyone around the table looks anxious. No one says a word. Suddenly, all I can think of is how exhausted I am. It must show on my face. We should break for tonight, Matcha says. Faith's just off medical leave, and I think she needs to rest. I start to protest, but I'm met with a barrage of objections before I can even speak, so I sit quietly while everyone says their goodbyes. Arden and Graham clasp hands in the doorway. I hear Arden ask, You in? And Graham responds, Of course, as he departs. Finally, it's Winda, Arden, Fanny, and me left in the common room. But Fanny and Winda are beaming at me. Something is clearly up. There's a surprise for you in your room, Fanny says slyly. We got it for you a while ago, but it wasn't really appropriate until now. We set it up while you were outside talking. Wenda trades looks with Fanny, then grins at me. I hope you like it, she says. It's a temporary measure, but it should be a good start. Go on, off with you. I eye them both suspiciously as they shoo me toward my room. Arden, go help her with that, Fanny orders, and Arden joins me as we walk across the small hallway and pull open the door. Looking inside, I immediately laugh and return to the common room to hug my two friends. I think you'll get some use out of that now, Fanny says, squeezing me tight. Sleep well, or whatever. Arden is still standing in the hallway, waiting for me to return. When I come back, I push the door open wide, and clasping his hands, pull him into the room with me. Oh, he says, laughing. I see. My little beige hammock has disappeared. In its place, lively in stripes of teal and orange and white, hangs a brand new hammock made for two. Arden studies my face, his eyes sparkling. His lips curl into a mischievous smile. Never taking his eyes off me, he extends one hand and pushes the door firmly shut behind us. Fanny and Wenda's delighted cackles carry down the hallway and out into the night. After so many years of sleeping alone, it's a little confusing waking up next to someone. It takes me a few seconds to remember I'm on Iona in the middle of a crisis instead of on home world shaking off a long, complicated dream. Arden is still asleep, one forearm thrown across his eyes in defense against the pale morning light creeping in through the window. I take a few moments just to watch him, as I often did in our other life together. His breathing is deep and steady. Occasionally he hiccups or mutters something unintelligible, but for the most part he is peaceful and still. He was the same kind of sleeper on Homeworld. So much has changed, but so much is just the same. The rising chimes are sounding, and I try to slip out of the hammock without disturbing him, but he's awake as soon as he detects my presence. 
Good morning, I say, grinning at him. How weird is this? He sits up, blinking and rubbing his eyes. I have to keep reminding myself I'm not hallucinating, he says. I used to dream this scene almost every night. Usually we were somewhere somewhat more luxurious and somewhat less sandy, but it was always me waking up to you silhouetted against the morning light. Although we weren't always naked, that, that's an improvement. His face breaks into a provocative grin that I can't help but mirror. But the chimes are growing louder and the sounds of our pod coming to life are echoing down the little hallway, and that puts pause to any other ideas we might have at the moment. I'm sorry to infringe on your dream improvement, but it's time to get going, I say, picking up his pants from the floor where he abandoned them last night and tossing them to him. And I'm sure you have some important space pirate stuff to deal with this morning, in addition to all your crucial data entry and warehouse management tasks. We both have some important stuff to deal with this morning, he says, swinging his feet to the floor and pulling on his pants. It's interrogate Fallon March Day. That's sure to be fun. Where the hell is my shirt? How's that going to work, I ask, stepping into my own cargo pants and pulling a fresh brown tee over my head. I have a lot of questions for her. Are you officially part of the interrogation team? I yank Arden's shirt from the corner of my wall mirror and hand it to him. He sniffs it, wrinkles his nose, and tucks it into his waistband rather than putting it on. I'll be there in my official company capacity since the items discovered were tactical military. I'm not sure what other plans Graham might have, but I know he wants us both participating, he says. I'll have to run by my room for a second. I'll see you in the common room. Then we'll head over to Graham's pod. He crosses the small room in three steps wraps one arm around my waist, pulls me against him with a dramatic flourish, and plants a solid kiss on my lips. Good morning, my love, he says with a wink, and then dashes out the door and down the hall. As he crosses the common room to reach the main hallway that leads to his room, I hear a chorus of hoots and whistles from our podmates gathered there. When I enter the common room just a few minutes later, the hoots and whistles repeat and intensify, and there's even a smattering of applause. I roll my eyes at the attention and can feel myself starting to blush, so I do a theatrically deep curtsy and then slip into the kitchen to recover. The reception in the kitchen is very much the same. The instant Hen sees me, he makes a loud series of triumphant barks that are no less energetic for the fact that he makes them while delicately stacking fresh breakfast muffins on a tray held aloft by his sister, who is also chirping woohoo at the top of her lungs. Mabry contributes a, yeah, girl, and punches my arm as she pushes past me to get some more coffee. At the center of the kitchen is Winda. She's not saying a word, but the expression on her face is nothing short of proud. I'm dying, I say. You're living, she counters with a broad grin. Was it all right? The hammock, I mean. It's Winda's turn to blush, and I let myself enjoy her discomfort for just a second. Yes, I say, it was terrific. And the hammock was fine. We both dissolve into fits of laughter. We're just coming up for air when Arden strides through the kitchen door, wearing a fresh shirt and whistling cheerfully. He's whistling? That was some good hammock, quips Mabry, who slips back into the common room before I can think of a comeback. All of this appears to sail neatly over Arden's awareness as he comes to stand with Winda and me. I grab Graham on hail, he says. He's expecting us after breakfast. We survive the gauntlet of the common room for our morning meal without any major incidents, although the comments, grins, and looks keep coming. Instead of embarrassment, I'm finding the attention pleasant. I know my podmates are happy for me. They understand this is where I was always headed. I wonder what other things they've all seen in me that I've yet to see in myself. On the way to Graham's pod, I drop on my headset and tap into the general channel. I hear the usual buzz about maintenance requests and other tasks that need doing, punctuated by Macha's reminder to us both that Arden and I are supposed to be on light duty for the next two days. When she finishes her reminder by saying, try to avoid any unnecessary exertion, Arden gives me a meaningful look with a raised eyebrow, and I find myself struggling to hold back laughter. The mood in Graham's pod is much more somber. Most of his podmates have headed off for the day's duties, and it's quiet and dark inside. We find Graham sitting in the common room, reading a hollow tablet. 
Fallon March remains ensconced in Pauly's room, where she has stayed since her house arrest, refusing to come out for any reason except to use the bathroom or get food. So what's the procedure, I ask, after we exchange morning pleasantries and decline an offer of more coffee. I'm not sure I know, Graham says hesitantly, casting a questioning look at Arden. This is really more your area of expertise than mine. Uh, not mine either, I'm afraid, Arden says. I just sneak around and watch people. I don't really ask them pointed questions. What's company protocol? It's hard to sort out, Graham sighs, tossing the holo onto the center of the table. There's protocol for instances in which banned or dangerous materials are found in someone's possession. But since she wasn't caught physically handling the spheres and wasn't even in the room, those statutes don't seem to apply. It doesn't matter that they were an office she's been using, since materially it's not her permanently assigned office. There are statutes that are actionable against the standing owner or registered user of the space, but that would be Polly, and we know they weren't there because of him. Let me see, I say, and Graham slides the holo over to me. I start scanning the regulations, all written in obtuse corporate speak. It brings back my days as a company manager on Homeworld, which is something I'd rather forget. But I soldier on, looking for anything that might be of use. You do have grounds to question her, Arden says. It sounds like she verbally claimed the materials as hers. She could even dispute that, Graham says. I just feel like I don't have much to go on here, and she'll know the rule book backwards and forwards. If we go in and start asking her questions without a good foundation, she'll eviscerate us. Wait, I say. She knows company protocol, but she doesn't know anything about Ionian protocol. Is that a safe bet? Arden and Graham both look at me curious. More than safe bet, Graham says. Learning anything about Iona clearly has been at the bottom of her priority list if it was ever on the list at all. Then we use Ionian protocol. She's not on company territory now. Ionian protocol applies, I announce. Well, that's perfect, Arden says, but what is Ionian protocol in this case? I smile conspiratorially. We're an independent service planet on the verge of becoming a home world, so those regulations are naturally going to be in a period of evolution. In other words, they're whatever we need them to be. Graham lets out a short laugh. See, Arden says to him, raw talent, space pirate in the making. Get Fallon March out here. Let the interrogation begin. When March emerges, she doesn't look any worse for wear from her house arrest. Her lacquered nails are still as bright, her hair is perfect, and her facial expression just as icy. She literally looks down her nose at me when I invite her to have a seat at the common room's table. Really, you're just going to ask me questions in here like it's some kind of coffee clatch? She asks imperiously. Don't you people have courtrooms and things like that on this planet? We do, I say, making sure my voice is unemotional and steady. But those are for criminals who are under arraignment. You may get to see them depending on how things go this morning. I indicate again the seat for her at the foot of the table. After glaring at me for a moment, she finally sits down. First, I want to let you know the expectations of our inquiry, I say, taking a seat next to Graham. You're expected to answer all questions honestly and to the best of your ability. You are expected to acknowledge our explanation of the laws you have broken and your comprehension of the penalty for those infractions. And you are expected to participate willingly in any recommended sanction if such is decided upon. Do you understand? March looks at me levelly. You've worked for the company, she says in a dry, unimpressed tone. You talk like a management drone. And you talk like a bratty six-year-old, but that doesn't make me assume that you don't know what you're saying, I say to her, unaffected. Do you understand? She sucks in a breath and opens her mouth to say something else. I wouldn't, Graham says quietly. His voice is bordering on a growl. 
She looks from me to Graham again for a moment, and then mutters, Of course I understand. She follows that with a loud, bored sigh. <sighs> Just get on with it, please. Ask me your questions. Let's get it over with. Graham takes over now. What can you tell us about the spherical objects we found in the office you've been using? Where did you obtain them? Those things aren't mine, March says, smirking. They must have belonged to the office's previous owner. The former user has been in stasis for a month. We can verify that they were not part of the office's inventoried contents prior to that time, I say. Maybe someone else put them there. Maybe he did it. She tilts her head at Arden, who visibly struggles to remain silent. She continues to look him over in frank appraisal, and her lips curve up in an almost imperceptible gesture of sexually charged interest. Have we met? She asks in a voice just short of a purr. But when Arden answers only with a continued stern and unresponsive stare, she shrugs and looks away. She begins pattering the fingernails of her right hand against the arm of the chair. You made a public declaration that the objects were your personal effects and threatened legal action over our handling of them, I remind her. So either you lied to us then, or you're lying to us now, both of which are punishable offenses when dealing with banned materials. With which infraction would you like to be charged? One of them carries a much more serious penalty than the other. You'll do whatever you want, no matter what I say. It's how you do things out here. No respect for the rule of law, March spits out. This is why this is just a service planet. No respectable person chooses to come here. You're all completely unrefined, and the way you live is disgusting. You're the one who broke the law, Arden finally says in a measured voice. Not only Ionian law, but company policy as well. These protocols exist because Iona handles some very delicate operations for the company, operations that are apparently beyond your security clearance because you seem shockingly ignorant of them. It's obvious that the company leadership has a significantly better opinion of this planet than do you. March sneers at Arden now. Who are you, she asks. Another independence movement chill? No, I'm a company shill. Commander Arden Wilson, Tactical Security. March's eyebrows lift in surprise. You're quite famous in certain circles, she says, if you really are Arden Wilson. You want to question my identity? Go ahead. I'll do a live holo with you for your boss. And then you'll be even more famous than I am, as the biggest idiot who ever wore a company credential. Let's do that now, shall we? Arden says, reaching for the holo tablet that still sits on the table. Fine, March snaps. It doesn't matter who you are. We don't have to do a live holo for anyone. I see a curious cloud of anxiety cross March's face briefly. Graham sees it too and reacts. What's the problem, he asks. You get very jumpy every time someone mentions speaking with your boss. Does she not realize what you're doing here? Of course she does, but she's a very busy woman and she doesn't have time for these petty grievances. This isn't a petty grievance, Graham says. You claimed as your personal effects 27 armed canisters of a weaponized control-class substance colloquially known as blue, which causes dramatic alteration in human function on contact. Both the substance and the delivery mechanism are prohibited from all worlds, company and independent, by council development decree, as too dangerous to handle near any population. The only place these armed canisters can be loaded and stored is on a military-grade vehicle specially designed for the purpose, on a limited-access secure enviro, or by trained personnel at a hazardous materials facility. I don't know if you're fully aware, but a plastic credenza in a public building on a populated planet is not any of those things. March scoffs. Obviously, those things aren't mine. Then why did you say that they were? I never said that. 
On the contrary, I interject, you did in fact say that the things Graham had in his hands were your personal effects. You claimed them in front of not one, not two, but three witnesses. Silence. Well, I prompt, what's your story now? March scowls and taps her bright red fingernails even more aggressively. You're trying to trap me, she says. How's that, I ask. You're trying to get me to admit to something. What would that be, I inquire. How would I know? You're the one with the agenda, she shoots back. I'm just attempting to sort out what action to recommend to company human resources, I say. It's a total bluff, but it works. March blanches, then recovers herself. You won't get anywhere with HR, she announces primly. I have a spotless service record. Not anymore, says Arden. The drumming fingernails abruptly stop. The sudden silence is more unnerving than the automatic weapons fire sound she makes with them. She glares at him, then at me, then leans forward in her chair. When she speaks, her voice has sunken into an angry hiss. What are you implying? She asks. I'm not implying anything. I'm telling you that you were flagged this morning by tactical as a security risk, Arden says casually, matching her glare. Graham blinks back an expression of surprise and my own mouth drops open. Meanwhile, a whole series of emotions parade across March's face, starting with surprise but rapidly proceeding to fury. A security risk, she repeats, her eyes traveling around the room and finally landing on Arden with steely reproach. Yes. You reported me as a security risk. Her voice has lost a little of its assurance. Her eyes narrow as she studies Arden carefully. It was necessary. You can't get away with that. My position is no longer your position, Arden completes the sentence for her. Eliana Gardet has taken over as acting operations security chief. You'll be receiving a communique shortly. You would have received it already if you ever wore your headset. March sighs heavily. Her hands fold into her lap and she looks down at them for a moment, scowling, then returns her icy glare to Arden. So when do I go home? She asks. It's a simple question, yet she manages to ask it in a way that makes it charged and insulting. You'll be able to return to Homeworld after we've completed the investigation to what you were doing with this banned substance, which, as it happens, ties directly into our team investigation of the incident at warehousing, he says. His voice is calm, but his eyes are dark, sending a clear warning. In the meantime, you'll be our guest here on Iona. We'll be happy to host you for as long as necessary. You will, however, have to give up that private room, Graham adds with a smile, clearly relishing every word. I've handed over my duties as pod leader to Fanny McFarland, that will be her room from this evening on. We talked to Fallon March for another hour, but managed to get nothing useful from her. Despite the shock of losing her powerful position to Arden's skillful end-around and her private room to Graham's decree, her haughty demeanor remains unchanged. And she continues to insist she knows nothing about the spheres discovered in the credenza and refuses to answer any questions about her motives or the real nature of her assignment to Iona. She's got to give us some answers eventually, Arden says, as three of us walk toward intake to have another look around Polly's office. Making her give up the private room was a stroke of genius. Eh, yeah, genius had nothing to do with it, Graham confesses. I talked to Fanny about this last night and convinced her to take the reins. After I talked to you this morning, it just made sense to go ahead and make the announcement at breakfast and speed up the timing. Fallon was going to have to move anyway and just came at the perfect moment. So Fanny moves into Polly's room, and Fallon will be sharing with Mila and Alice. I chuckle. That's sure to be entertaining. I hear Mila snores like a freight train, and Alice sings in her sleep. And yet, somehow, it still feels like Mila and Alice are getting the raw end of the deal, Arden says. I hope for their sake she comes around soon and tells us what we need to know. What if she's telling the truth? I ask. Arden gives me a look and starts to speak, but I hold my hand up to stop him. 
She might have been sent here on a mission with only need-to-know information. It truly may be that she's got no idea how dangerous those things are. Even if that's true, it still doesn't excuse her from telling us the truth about everything else, Arden says. We know she's lying about why she was sent here and who sent her. She could have just told us what she was doing here, and that would have made up for almost everything else. Maybe after she learned you'd tanked her entire career, she just didn't feel like she had anything else to gain from talking, I say. Oh, but I haven't tanked her entire career. I can clear her and expunge this from her record just as quickly as I flagged her. But it's like working with a mule. She has to make me want to clear her, Arden says, grinning. Well, there's our next talking point for sure, Graham says dryly. We're all a bit on edge as we enter the intake building, but our reinspection of Polly's office yields nothing new. The credenza where the spheres were hidden is empty, as is the small closet. When I pull open the chest drawer that is home to Fallon March's weapon, Arden does a double take. I should do something to secure this, he says, picking it up carefully. It's more dangerous than you realize. Great, I say. So she wasn't bluffing with this thing. If she'd fired it, you wouldn't be standing here, he confirms with a grimace. In fact, most of this wall wouldn't be standing here. It quickly becomes clear that the office isn't going to yield any additional clues. Graham heads back to Goods to take his shift as coordinator. Arden and I visit Mabry at security to find a secure container for March's firearm. We're on our way back to the pod when Arden gets a hail. He listens intently, mutters a few instructions, and then finally says, I'll be right there. I'm stunned when he hands over March's newly secured weapon to me. I have to go, he says. You'll want to get this somewhere safe, at least temporarily. Technically, it's March's personal property, but we can't let her have it while she's under investigation. I take the container gingerly. Arden kisses my forehead and hurries off in the direction of goods, and I'm left standing on the edge of the square holding a deadly firearm in a digitally locked, bright pink high-impact plastic box. I decide on the spur of the moment that maybe this should be the responsibility of March's temporary pod leader. I'm already on my way by the time Fanny answers my hail. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying Nothing Larger Than These Stars. Check back next week for a new episode. Follow and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. <laughs>